0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 14, 2012. I begin this week's podcast with news about the so-called fiscal cliff that we've discussed in recent podcasts. It's a new law created by the Sequestration Transparency Act that requires the President to submit a detailed report by September 6th about how sequestration will be implemented. That is, of course, if sequestration comes to pass and isn't adjusted by Congress either before the election or during the lame duck. I also have an update related to the implementation of the Basel III banking rules. Last week, federal banking regulators announced that the comment period on a proposed rule related to Basel III will be extended until October 22nd of this year. Then, in the long-coming Tax Credit section of this week's podcast, I'll discuss the proposed changes to the utility allowance regulations, as well as the trends that we found in the recently proposed fair market rents for 2013. Then, I have news about a bill introduced in Congress last week that would expand the Long income Housing Tax Credit Program to provide housing for middle-income seniors. I also have an update on the fair housing case in Texas that we've discussed in recent podcasts. In our new markets tax credit segment, I'll briefly mention an audit report released by the Treasury Inspector General that discusses the new market tax credit program. I'll also share an update on the number of certified community development entities, and finally. I'll review the remaining deadlines in this round of new market tax credit applications. In this week's renewable energy discussion, I'll discuss the findings of three reports released last week by the Treasury Inspector General regarding audits of the Section 1603 cash grant payments awarded to three wind farms. And finally, in our historic tax credit discussion, I have a little bad news to share, and the bad news regards the state historic tax credit in Massachusetts. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, Congress continues in recess until after Labor Day. However, in Congress's absence from D.C., last week, on August 7th, President Barack Obama signed into law the Sequestration Transparency Act of 2012. This legislation did have bipartisan support in both houses of Congress. It passed the House on July 18th and then passed the Senate on July 25th. The bill requires the President to submit a detailed report on the implementation of discretionary reductions in security and non-security categories, as well as non-exempt direct budget sequestration cuts, scheduled to take place on January 2, 2013. The bill also requires the head of each executive agency to provide the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, any information at the program, project, or activity level Necessary to prepare the report. The President is required to submit the report to Congress within 30 days after enactment of the Act, which means that he'll have to submit a report by September 6th. And this report, once again, is going to detail how sequestration would be implemented. For those of us following the CDFI fund budget, the HUD budget, and other, other budget items, we'll be interested in seeing how sequestration will affect those particular items. Now, Novograd Company will monitor the release of related information, and it will update you in future podcasts as details become available. And we'll also send breaking news email alerts as warranted. And if you're not already signed up to receive those free email alerts, you can sign up online at www.novocode.com. Turning to banking. Last week, federal banking regulators announced that they've extended the comment period until October 22nd for three notices of proposed rulemaking that would revise and replace the agency's current capital rules. Originally, comments were due by September 7, 2012. Now, the proposed rules do include a rule regarding regulatory capital. As listeners may recall, Basel III is a comprehensive set of reform measures developed to strengthen the regulation, supervision, and risk management of the banking sector. Banking regulators say the Basel III rules are intended to raise the level and quality of capital in the banking system. Among other things, these measures aim to improve the banking sector's ability to absorb shocks that arise from financial and economic stress. When the complete Basel III package is implemented by January 1, 2019, stricter regulatory capital rules will be fully in place. Now, the minimum level of capital will vary among various tiers of banks, which is expected to directly influence the yield needs of the banks in each tier banks subject to higher capital reserve requirements will generally have to achieve higher average earnings on their investments to generate the same shareholder return. As banks adjust their capital to meet the new requirements, there are significant implications for their interest in tax credit investments. And as banks continue to dominate the field of tax credit investors, regulatory changes such as the implementation of Basel III capital requirements will have ripple effects. Now, it's too soon to tell how deep those ripples will be, because the changes will be phased in over the course of several years and will affect individual banks differently. In last week's announcement, the regulators say the comment period was extended to allow interested parties more time to understand, evaluate, and prepare comments on the proposals. If you have questions about Basel III and what it might mean for the tax credit investment markets, or have your own views already, please send me an email to michael.novogratic at novoco.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, last week, the Internal Revenue Service released a notice concerning proposed updates to low-income housing tax credit utility allowance regulations. The proposed regulations clarify that utility costs paid by a tenant based on actual consumption in a sub-metered rent-restricted unit are treated as paid by the tenant directly to the utility company. That's good news. However, use of a ratio utility billing system, or RUBs, would still be disallowed. Now, the notice also announced a November 27th public hearing on the proposed regulations. Novograd and Company is reviewing the proposed changes and will present a summary and analysis of the proposed regulations in the September issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. And if you have questions in the meantime, please call my partner Jim Kroger in our San Francisco office. Now, turning to HUD, in last week's podcast, I announced that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development had released its proposed firm market rents, or FMRs, for fiscal year 2013. HUD uses the FMRs to determine payment standard amounts for several programs, including the Housing Choice Voucher Program. FMRs are also one of the components HUD uses to calculate rent limits for long income housing tax credit units. As promised, Novograd and Company has examined the data And here are a few of the things we found. HUD has proposed increased fiscal year 2013 FMRs for the majority of the country. Proposed FMRs for approximately 88% of counties would be higher than for fiscal year 2012. This is in stark contrast to 2011, where almost 70% of the counties saw decreases. The average increase, by the way, for these counties was 8.62%. The counties with increases cover almost 80% of the population, based on the 2010 census. FMRs in approximately 12% of the counties, however, would decrease in a proposal over 2012 levels. Less than 1% of counties would have no change in FMRs. The five areas with the largest proposed decreases in FMRs are Wayne County, Utah, Bailey County, Texas, Greenlee County, Arizona, Yakutat City in Borough, Alaska, and Denali Borough, Alaska. Proposed fair market decreases in these areas range from 31% to 21%, and they'd result in rents that are between $282 and $191 lower than in fiscal year 2012. Now, conversely, the five areas with the largest proposed increases in FMRs are Lawrence County, South Carolina. Aleutians, Eastboro, Alaska, Trago County, Kansas, Chavez County, New Mexico, and Herfano County, Colorado. Proposed FMR increases in these areas range from 55% to 42%, and they will result in rents that are between $307 and $238 higher than those in fiscal year 2012. Now, what does this mean for low-income tax credit properties, besides the rent differential in payments? The 2013 FMRs will likely affect tax credit and tax and bond income and rent limits at properties in metro high housing cost areas because those are areas where HUD used 2013 FMRs to calculate credit and bond income limits. There are 20 metro high housing cost areas. HUD has proposed increases in 15 metro high high housing cost areas, 11 of which are in Puerto Rico. The other four metro high housing cost areas that aren't in Puerto Rico are Honolulu with a proposed increase of 3.74%, New York, New York, 3.5%, Salinas, California, 3%, and San Diego, California, 0.29%. Now, if the proposed FMRs are adopted, properties in those areas would likely see similar increases in their low-income housing tax credit and bond income and rent limits. As I mentioned, 15 of the 20 have increases, which means five of the 20 have proposed decreases. The five areas with decreases, San Francisco, 5.77%, Los Angeles, 1.8%, Orange, 1.88%, Riverside, 2.87%, and Miami, Florida, 0.27%. So those are the five areas with proposed decreases. Now, if the proposed FMRs are adopted, income limits in these areas will not see an increase using its fair market value calculation. However, income limits at properties in these areas could increase if area median median incomes have increased. If the area's median incomes decrease, however, the new lower income limits would only apply to new developments in those areas because HUD has a hold harmless policy that keeps income limits from decreasing at existing properties. Now, HUD is accepting comments on the proposed FMRs until September 4th. More information about proposed 2013 FMRs can be found at www.taxcredithousing.com. Simply click on the Fair Market Rents button in the Facts and Figures menu. The final fiscal year 2013 FMRs will be posted to the Affordable Housing Resource Center when they become available. In the meantime, please contact Thomas Stagg in our Seattle area office with any questions you have about these proposed changes, or if you want to submit comments. Now, turning to legislation, a bill was introduced in the House earlier this month by Representative Joe Baca that would expand the Income Housing Tax credit Program to benefit struggling, middle-income seniors. Supporters of the measure say this population's incomes, the elderly population, are generally too high to qualify for subsidized housing assistance, which is targeted to the lowest-income households. The bill, H.R. 6295, also called the Affordable Housing for Moderate Income Seniors Act, would require states to provide additional points in their qualified allocation plans for developments that cater to moderate-income seniors. In order to qualify for these moderate-income units, individuals would need to be 62 or older and have a household income of no more than 140% of their state's designated income eligibility limit for subsidized housing benefits. This adjustment to the tax code would mark the first federal incentive to build affordable housing exclusively For moderate income families in more than 40 years. This, according to Congressman Baca's office. You can find a copy of HR 6295 at www.taskforthhousing.com. And now we have an update on the Texas Fair Housing case. As listeners may recall, the case concerns the distribution of low income housing tax credit funded developments in the Dallas area. The Inclusive Communities Project sued in 2010, and then earlier this year, the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas ordered the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, TDHCA, to create a plan to address the disparity of local housing tax credits in the Dallas metropolitan area. On August 7th, the court ordered TDHCA to implement nine actions when awarding 4% and 9% local housing tax credits in the Dallas metro area. These actions include continuing to include a 130 percent basis boost for proposed developments in high-opportunity areas, provide fair housing choice disclosures to prospective residents, and maintain a website on tax credit assisted properties, provide a mechanism to challenge public comments that cause developments to receive negative points, and adopt a tiebreaker for 9 percent applications that favors developments in high-opportunity areas. TDHCA must also file an annual progress report with the court and the remedial plan is in effect for five years from the day it files the first report. I should note that the remedial plan only applies to tax credits awarded in the Dallas metropolitan area and not to the state as a whole. If you'd like to read more about the case and what it could mean for affordable housing development throughout Texas and the country, you can check out Peter Lawrence's Policy Points column in the August issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. And if you have questions about the case or developing low income housing tax credit properties in Texas, I encourage you to call my partner, George Littlejohn, in our Austin, Texas office. In New Market Tax Credit News, last week the Treasury Inspector General released a report regarding an audit that it conducted related to the New Market Tax Credit. As listeners know, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, ARA, of 2009, authorized an additional $3 billion and tax credit allocation authority to the CDFI Fund for the New Market Tax Credit Program. This for the 2008 and 2009 allocation rounds, it was $1.5 billion per round. The report released last week presents the results of the OIG's audit and the CDFI Fund's process for reviewing and selecting applicants to receive New Market Tax Credit Allocation Authority during the calendar years 2008 and 2009. Overall, The OIG says it found that the CDFI Fund timely allocated the additional $3 billion of New Market Tax Credit Authority provided to it. That's good news. The audit also noted that there were no exceptions concerning its review of the CDFI Fund's ability to review and select awardees. However, the OIG noted that the NMTC program management did not maintain complete records supporting its reviews of applicants' eligibility to receive New Market Tax Credit allocations. Novograd and Company is currently reviewing the findings of this report, and I'll discuss the details of our review in more depth in next week's podcast. Also, regarding the CDFI Fund, last week the CDFI Fund released the most recent list of Certified Community Development Entities, or CDEs. As of July 31st, there are, get this, 5,780 certified CDEs. That represents 131 more CDEs than were certified as of June 30th. Now, as listeners may recall, in order to be eligible to apply for an Allocation to New Market Tax Credit Authority in the 2012 round, as in prior rounds, applicants must have submitted applications for CD certification. And if you're applying in 2012, the deadline for that was August 3rd. Now, while 5,780 is a lot of certified CDEs, I'd also note that many CDEs form an allocation or a new sub-CDE for each investment that they make in a given allocation. As such, a number of these CDEs represent multiple CDEs under a given allocation, as well as entities that were formed as CDEs in order to apply for new market tax credits and may not have received an allocation. And then, of course, there could be CDEs that are certified in order to be flow-through entities for CDEs that are in their business of investing in other CDEs. And while we're at this point, and speaking about the 2012 application round, I wanted to note that the application deadline is less than one month away. Applications for the 2012 New Market Task Round are due Wednesday, September 12th, and they're only going to be accepted electronically. Also, the CDFI will stop taking questions about the current application round after 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, September 10th. Furthermore, to be eligible in this round, prior allocatees need to have met the minimum qualified equity investment issuance thresholds by Wednesday, October 31st. With all that said, if you have any questions about applying for new market tax credits in this round, I encourage you to contact Novograd & Company. Send an email to cpas at Novico.com and we'll put you in touch with one of our firm's many new market tax credit application experts. In renewable energy tax credit news, The Treasury's Office of the Inspector General has released audits of the Section 1603 cash grant payments awarded to three wind farms. The new audits bring to eight the number of renewable energy projects whose cash grant payments the Inspector General's Office has reviewed and for which they've released a report. The three projects reviewed are Panther Creek Wind Farm 3 in Texas and Grand Ridge Energy 2 and Grand Ridge Energy 3 in Illinois. The audit results were positive. The OIG found that two of the wind farms, Grand Ridge 2 and 3, received the appropriate award amounts. And that Treasury overpaid one, Panther Creek 3, by, get this, $746. Panther Creek is a 199.5 megawatt wind farm located in Glasscock and Sterling Counties in Texas. EON Climate and Renewables North America placed the wind farm in service on August 31, 2009. Treasury awarded more than $107 million to the project. In its review of the project costs, OIG found that EON had included costs related to window blinds in its application. OIG determined that this was an ineligible cost and resulted in an overpayment of $746. EON said in its response to the audit, that it would return the overpayment. Turning to Grand Ridge 2 and 3, the other two projects audited, they were developed by Invenergy in place in service November 25, 2009 and December 21, 2009 respectively. Grand Ridge 2 is a 51 megawatt wind farm and it had an award of $32 million. Grand Ridge 3 is a 49.5 megawatt wind farm and it received an award of more than $32 million. The OIG determined that both awards were appropriate and recommended no further action. I'm sure you'll agree the results of these three audits is very encouraging. I'd like to note, though, that late last year the OIG reported it was also working on an audit of the Section 1603 program overall. At the time of this recording, it's unclear what stage that audit is at and when the results would be made public. You can find copies of all of the OIG's project audits, including the three I just discussed, at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have any questions about the Section 1603 grant program, contact my partner, Tony Grappone, in our Boston office or Stephen Tracy in our San Francisco office. If you tuned in last week, you may recall a proposal in Massachusetts to increase the annual cap on its state historic tax credit program to $60 million. We had reported how there had been a $10 million increase that was simply awaiting Governor Deval Patrick's signature. Unfortunately, although Governor Deval Patrick did sign the overall economic development bill that the measure was a part of, the HTC cap, the historic tax credit cap, increase was one of several provisions that he struck from the bill. According to the governor's office, these measures were vetoed because they were inconsistent with recommendations from the state's Tax Expenditure Commission. In the case of the historic tax credit cap increase of $10 million, the governor said that there has been no analysis of the program's effectiveness. Shortly after the veto was announced, Preservation Massachusetts reported that they had previously submitted copies of an economic impact study, along with a cost-benefit analysis of the program, to the governor and key members of his staff. These studies prove the program's effectiveness and success, the organization says. Copies of H4352, as well as Preservation Massachusetts Economic Impact Report on the program, are available at www.historictaxcredits.com. And for questions about using the Massachusetts Historic Tax Credit Program, please contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston, Massachusetts office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic & Company LLP. Archived discussions are available online at wwwnovogocom podcast or by subscribing to the Novogradic Report on Tax Credits and iTunes. & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novago.com.